Let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me in it to Paul's epistle to the Philippians in the second chapter, Philippians chapter 2, and I would like to read verses 9 through 11, and uh, if I could, I think you'll be able to follow in the ESV if I read from the New King James Version, if you would suffer me. <laughs> um, let's look at God's Word then, Philippians chapter 2. Verses 9 through 11, hear the word of the true and living God. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's once again seek his face in prayer. Let's pray. O Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence. We are grateful once again for being given the inestimable privilege of holding your word in our hands and having its truth set before our minds and our hearts. And I would pray, Father, for these, your dear people, that you would help them to be receptive of your word. Father, that they would hear so as to heed it. And I pray, Father, for your servant, that you would be pleased to override all of my own deficiencies and inadequacies, and Father, that you would be pleased to set your word before the minds and the hearts of your people in such a way that it would norm and form their lives so that they may become more conformed to the image of your own blessed Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Now, as we continue, I've been doing something, I suppose, of a series on the church, I much akin, much akin to what Kurt uh, plans to do with our young people. But I want us tonight to consider the church as a worshiping people. And I think it will be helpful for us to ground our thoughts on worship in the passage here in the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Now, this is one of the more well-known and striking passages of the New Testament concerning the theme of worship. And it's not my intention this evening to consider the subject of worship in any kind of comprehensive sense, but rather to limit our treatment of it to these three verses in view. And I want for us to consider at least four aspects of worship under these four headings. The object of our worship, the grounds of our worship, uh, the content of our worship, and then, last of all, the extent of our worship. So, first of all, then, let's consider the object of our worship. And I would direct your attention to verse 9, or rather to verse 10, where the apostle says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And verse 11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the object of our worship here in Philippians 2, 
according to the Apostle Paul, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is quite noticeable when you consider the overall context of this passage because the immediate context here in Philippians chapter 2 is the theme of our Lord Jesus as our great example. You may already be aware that Philippians is written to a group of Christians who are struggling, struggling with a number of issues, and particularly the issue of disunity in the church. And it is the issue of disunity stemming from a spirit of pride, of self-interest, of a self-asserting spirit that prevailed in the midst of this congregation. And so Paul writes this epistle to them, and he tackles this issue head-on of disunity and the spirit behind the disunity. And he does so in a number of ways. For instance, later on in chapter 4, he will proceed to name some specific individuals, mind you, indeed that of two ladies within the Philippian congregation. But here in chapter 2, he does something else. Here he placards or he parades before the Philippian believers the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to them in verse 5 of this chapter, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what was that frame of mind? What was the mental attitude of our Lord to which he refers? Well, he points out that the Lord Jesus did not act out of pride or out of self-interest, nor was he self-asserting, but rather to the contrary. Our Lord Jesus was self-emptying. He was self-denying, even self-abasing. Paul tells us that he took to himself the form of a doulos, of a servant, of a slave, really of a bond servant. That was the very lowest class of society, renouncing all personal rights and entitlements whatsoever. Jesus Christ, we're told, took that form. Moreover, he tells us that the Lord Jesus was found in appearance as a man, so that when you saw him walking down the street of Jerusalem in his day or elsewhere, he appeared as would any other first century Jewish man. In other words, there would have been nothing extraordinary in his appearance to turn one's head to look to him, not even for a moment. But even beyond that, our Lord Jesus made conscience of his humility and he obeyed his father to the point of death, even to that most painful, horrible humiliating form of execution, the death of the cross. In fact, far from self-aggrandizement and self-exaltation, he endured by way of humiliation this kind of death in his interest to seek out the best of even the worst of sinners. Now, granted, he, he came to this point of exaltation, our passage assures us 
But even there, this act was not of his own, but that of his father. It says, verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And so here Paul is saying to these Philippian believers, your attitude, your striving, your fighting with one another, your attitude should instead be like that of your Savior. If he is your pattern, if he is your example for behavior, it is this context in which you're to behold him as your example. And Paul is investing here all of his energy in placarding the Lord Jesus as their great example that he also gives us the picture of the Lord Jesus as the object of universal worship. And that means that Paul does not give us any inkling any more than he did these Philippians 2,000 years ago that Jesus was only an example. Now, some people think of Jesus only as the example of great living, that we ought to model our lives after him. But you, can't, you cannot possibly come away from this second chapter of Philippians where Jesus is so forcefully portrayed to be sure as an example, thinking that he was only an example. But it's almost as if Paul here goes beyond what by human standards is necessary. He could have stopped at verse 9 where he said, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. For there his point is made, Jesus having humbled himself in degrees from one low position to another. To the lowliest even is now highly exalted of God. And the apostle at that point, he could just lay this pen down and put it to rest because his point was altogether well made. But it's almost as if the apostle cannot say enough. He can't simply set forth the Lord Jesus as the great example to be modeled. But he must preach Jesus as the risen, exalted, and glorified Lord who is to be worshipped. And I think that you and I must lay hold of that this evening. We must never think of the Lord Jesus Christ simply in terms of being a great example or the ultimate role model for us as Christians to be followed. No, the Lord Jesus is the very object of our adoration and our worship. The one who humbled himself, emptied himself, and who became obedient to the point of death, even that of the cross. And it is at each of those points, not simply someone then to be imitated, but he is to be regarded as the highly exalted one, the focus of our worship. I think it's so beautifully put in that hymn by Benjamin Hamby. I don't even think this, this hymn, it's in the old blue Trinity hymnal, but I don't think it's in the red Trinity hymn, hymnal. Who is, who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? 
Who is he in deep distress, fasting in the wilderness? Who is he that stands and weeps at the grave where Lazarus sleeps? Who is he, the gathering throng, greet with loud triumphant psalm? Who is he at midnight, praise in dark Gethsemane? Who is he, the, the hymnist asks, who hangs there on yonder tree, dies in grief and agony? In other words, who do we behold, the hymn, hymn writer is saying, who do we behold in Bethlehem's manger? Who do we behold in the wilderness temptation, at the graveside of Lazarus, in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Calvary's tree, the cross, or the sealed tomb? Whom do we behold there, he's asking? Simply a model of love and selflessness? Simply some human form or template? To which we in turn are to conform our own lives. He is to be sure that. But far above that. Tis the Lord. O wondrous story. Tis the Lord. The King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him. Crown him. Lord of all. And then in Philippians chapter 2. We're given to see first of all then. That Jesus Christ has set before us in the clearest terms as the object of our worship. But then secondly, notice with me the grounds of our worship. On what grounds then is Jesus Christ set before us to be worshipped? What qualifies the Lord Jesus to be worshipped here? Well, look, look with me if you would at verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That is what qualifies him to be worshipped. It is his name. Well, what name then is referenced here? Well, if you look only at verse 10, it seems as though the name Jesus is the only name in view. The name that the angel Gabriel announced to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verse 31, to give her her firstborn son. For verse 10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. But if you examine verse 9 more closely, I think, you begin to see that that's not the only name in view here. Because in verse 9, we read, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And when Paul, being a Jew, speaks of the name which is above every name, he can only mean one name, and that is the name Yahweh. He is the Lord our God. He is the God of Israel. Yahweh is the name which is above every name. So far above every name, in fact, that in the Old Testament, the name of God is held in other reverence, often referring to it simply as the name. We read, you and I, in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 11, that a man is stoned for blaspheming that name. Or Deuteronomy 28 and verse 58. The people of Israel were told that they were to fear this glorious 
an awesome name. The Lord, your God, Yahweh, your God. Isaiah 59 and verse 19 looks forward to the last day. And there we're told that name will inspire universal fear on the part of mankind. Now the Israelites who originally received these Old Testament scriptures, they understood immediately that this name was Yahweh, Jehovah, because his was the only name to be revered in this way. His name was the only name above every other name. And frankly, it's incredible, I think, that the Apostle Paul had anything other in mind when he wrote these words than that of the name Yahweh when he wrote to the Philippians. Moreover, I think this is confirmed when you look on to verse 11 because we read in verse 11 that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is kurios. And the Greek word for kurios, uh, for Lord there, is the word always used in the Septuagint, the Greek version or the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. It's the word always used to translate the Hebrew word Yahweh. And so there can be little doubt that when Paul says that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that the name Yahweh is in view here. And therefore it's the name Yahweh, the God of Israel, that demands that worship be offered our Lord Jesus. And it is the possession of that name and what that name implies and qualifies him as the object of our worship. Now, I think it's important that we be very clear in our own minds as to what Paul means in verse 9 when he writes that God has given him the name which is above Every name. We must not look on it as something random or arbitrary on the part of God. That God simply declared one day to give Jesus Christ the name Yahweh. I think what is in view here from the Jewish perspective particularly is that a name recognizes and it acknowledges what we would say in theological terms is an ontological reality. Something about the being that already exists. When Hebrew parents would give a name to their child, they didn't simply give him or her a name, the sound of which they happened to like. They didn't choose a name from some contemporary pop star who was currently number one on the charts, and oh, we'll, we'll name him after that one. So they didn't even give a child a name that expressed their own hopes or aspirations for the child's future, but rather they would give their child a name that expressed either the circumstances surrounding the conception and birth of that child or which expressed the status of that child as an answer to prayer, as a gift from God. It was a name given that meant something or recognized the reality that already existed. And that's what we have here as well. When God gives this name, Yahweh, 
to Jesus Christ at this point of exaltation. It is simply an acknowledgement, a public acknowledgement by God of an ontological reality that already existed and a status which he already possessed even before the beginning of the world. This is simply God's great and public recognition of this reality. The point being, you see, that up until this moment of exaltation, the incarnate Christ appearing in the frailty of human flesh had appeared to be anything but Yahweh God. That little baby in Bethlehem's manger did not look like Jehovah God. The man who stooped down to wash his disciples' feet did not appear to be Yahweh God. That beaten and scourged figure crowned in mockery and thorns and dressed in a purple robe did not look like the Lord God of Israel. And that battered derelict hanging on a Roman gibbet did not look like Jehovah God. And here you see at this point of exaltation, with the period of his humiliation behind him, we see God's public vindication wherein he acknowledges before the whole moral universe despite what men failed to see in the frailty of his incarnation and despite that there was as Isaiah affirms no beauty in him that we should desire him when we see him indeed in spite of the fact that he was despised and rejected of men and was a man acquainted with Sorrow and grief. He is, always had been, and always will be Jehovah God. Nothing less than that. And therefore I'm saying that the grounds and the basis for the worship of Jesus is demonstrated by the very name that he possesses. This name given to him in his exaltation. And I think it's important that we understand and grasp that, that we don't simply worship Jesus primarily because of what he's done for us, though that is something beyond comprehension. Paul doesn't say it's because our Lord Jesus humbled himself, emptied himself, and became obedient even to the death of the cross, that it is that For that reason, every knee should bow. No, but it's because of his name. He is Yahweh, God. If he had ever come to earth, even if he had never left his throne on high, if he had never gone to Calvary's cross, he would still eternally be due the worship of every creature in the world. My friend, if you're here tonight, And you may be looking at the rest of us and you're thinking, I'm thankful that you can worship this Lord Jesus, but that's not my thing. That doesn't do anything for me. My friend, regardless of whether you recognize Jesus Christ as the object of what should be your worship, that makes no difference. He is still your God. 
and you are under solemn obligation according to the ten words of Moses that you are to worship the Lord your God, whether you acknowledge him as, as, or not as a child of his redemption, you are nonetheless a child of his creation. I remember it was said by old Rabbi Duncan, he said, I would be bound to love God for what he is in himself, even while his nature was inflicting punishment on myself. I would be morally bound forever to adore the justice that banished me. That's quite a thought. But I want you to see, and I hasten on to make all these points. Thirdly, you'll notice with me the content of the worship. And the content of this worship, it consists in two things. First of all, there's this bowing of the knee that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Worshiping involves bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. And what does it mean to bow the knee to Jesus Christ? Well, in Derek Kidder's words, it means acknowledging our place and acknowledging his place. Acknowledging our place and acknowledging his place. It is, if you like, the physical enactment of those words uttered by John the Baptist concerning our Lord Jesus, that he must increase and I must decrease. Bowing to knee to Jesus physically and visually, it represents the fact that he is the highly exalted, great God, and I am the low, small, dependent creature upon my Creator. I am utterly subject to him. Now, it may be this evening that we do not literally and physically bow the knee to Christ. And it may be that we do. But surely, surely this must be regardless the posture of our hearts before God. That in our hearts, when we gather and come to sing to Jesus Christ, there should be the acknowledgement that we are at his feet that he stands over and above us, that when we pray to him, that is the posture of our hearts in the presence of God. But even apart from the context of our public worship, every day, every hour of every day, every moment, surely this should be the posture of our hearts, the posture of a bended knee a bended knee before this one whose name is to be adored before every other name and above every other. And as we face individual situations in our daily lives, whether at work, at home, in the classroom, or in the place of business, or in our, even in our pleasure when we're just out having fun, we worship the Lord Jesus Christ by obeying him in every context of our lives in order to render unto his name that which is due unto him alone. And when we turn the other cheek or go the second mile or bless those who curse us, love our enemies, or be pure of heart, we are to practice, you and I, those things Coram Deo, in the presence of the one whom we worship, surely in the trenches of everyday life, it is there that we discover what it is to render to Jesus Christ this bowing of the knee in worship. It's not simply something we do, you and I, twice here on the Lord's Day. 
But every day, in every context of life, it is often said that the devil is in the details, but Jesus Christ is in the details of our everyday life. And then there's a second aspect of worship. Not only is it this bowing of the knee, but Paul says it's the confessing of the tongue. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What, is it, what does this mean? What does it mean to confess? It means to proclaim or declare something. But there's a very strong element of openness and transparency here. It's a pub- public thing. It's something you do out in the open before the eyes and ears of an own-looking and own-hearing world. You see, the worship of Jesus Christ, it has a horizontal element to it as well as a vertical element. The primary activity, to be sure, is vertical. And our primary desire in the worship of Jesus Christ is that we should know that we exalt him as Lord and submit to his lordship. But there's this additional horizontal element that men and women, those around us, should also know that we believe Jesus Christ is Lord and that we submit to his lordship openly, transparently, before the eye of others. This is the label, if you please, by which we should be known. The acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Lord should be the face of the church to the world. But then, last of all, and very quickly... I want you to know this very briefly with me in closing. Look at the extent of the worship that the Apostle Paul sets before us. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. That is, everyone everywhere should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we're going to consider, perhaps in the future, if God gives us grace, a study of the church as an evangelizing people. But I want you to see tonight that there is a link between the church as a worshiping people and the church as an evangelizing people. I think it's expressed well by John Piper who writes in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, missions exist. Why? Can anyone remember? Because worship does it. Missions exist because worship doesn't. You see, we ought to be evangelizing people, not because we want to become a mega church with thousands of people on our membership roll. And not because we desire to become more financially sound. And not because we want to be Pharisees heard and seen of men. But because we believe, you and I, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we look around in our community this evening, we see men and women. We think of men and women whose knees are unbowed. To Jesus Christ, whose tongues do not confess him as Lord. Well, this was brought out in the conference, but I simply refer to it again because I think it's, it's, it goes right along with what John Piper said. You remember Paul in Acts chapter 17? He goes to the city of Athens, and there 
He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to um, catch up with him, so to speak. They're, they're going to be there soon. But while he's in Athens, get what, what Paul says, that it says his spirit is provoked within him. Why is his spirit provoked within, within him? Does anyone recall? Because he sees that the whole city is given over to idolatry. And then he goes into the synagogue as well as into the public square and he preaches Jesus Christ. Why? Because he saw that Jesus Christ was being robbed of his glory by these who were worshiping idols. And if we're committed, you and I, to the lordship of Jesus Christ, which in word we confess, the necessity is laid upon us, you and I, to look out as we go out for people who need to hear the reality that their knees ought to be bowed to Jesus Christ and their tongues ought to confess that he is Lord, that God may not be robbed of his glory. And until this day comes, and surely it will, Paul tells us, that every knee is bowed to Jesus Christ and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. You and I have a lot of work to do because to rephrase Dr. Piper's words, if I may, evangelism exists because worship doesn't. May God be pleased to seal his word to our hearts this evening. Let us pray.